I really thought his death would stop the movement. I mean, it appeared to for about a month. Then at the great celebration of Pentecost, which is our celebration of when Moses gave the law, it's about 40, 50 days after Passover. At that time, we'd heard these rumors about people who'd seen Jesus before. People who'd not just seen him before he died, but people who'd seen him after he died. People who said that they had talked to him, that they'd seen his wounds. Now, we, we thought this was pure ludicrousness, and honestly, I was completely confused, but, but these people showed up at Pentecost. Not only did they show up at Pentecost, they proclaimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. They proclaimed that this had been predicted by the prophets, that our God had said this. Now, honestly, I was astonished at the boldness, at the wisdom, and at the power of these ordinary men. It was clear that they were ordinary men. Ordinary men who'd spent considerable time with their rabbi Jesus. It was remarkable from that educational standpoint, and as a teacher myself, it was something that every teacher does want for their students. I realize I didn't introduce myself. I apologize. I'm I'm Rabbi Gamaliel, and I am a member of the Jewish High Council, the Sanhedrin. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee, not only a Pharisee, but a Pharisee who is a doctor of God's law and one who studied under the greatest of our teachers, our Pharisee named Hillel. And I'm one of only seven rabbis who have been given the title Rabbon, instead of rabbi, meaning our teacher. So that, I appreciate that honor. Now, um, where was I? Oh, yes, yes, Rabbi Jesus. So the problem with Rabbi Jesus is that he's supposed to be dead. But his followers continue to carry on his teachings. They are not teaching God's laws. They're not teaching the purity of who God is. Instead, they are teaching about this resurrection from the dead, which, as a Pharisee, I agree with, but as this continuation about Jesus and his teachings, I have great concern for. So we at the High Council brought these followers before us. We threatened them and we let them go, but we warned this dead man's disciples not to teach in his name anymore and not to continue to proclaim that he has risen from the dead. And honestly, I thought our threats would stop them. But one morning, the temple guard summoned me to another council meeting. They said that they had locked up these followers of Jesus again. They'd kept them in prison overnight because they continued to fill the streets of Jerusalem with this teaching. And there were certain members of this high council, especially the ones that were associated with the high priest, his friends, and his family, that I could tell that they were filled with jealousy, that these disciples, these ordinary men, would have this following out in the outer courts that was bigger than what we would have in the inner courts as the chief priests. Now remember, my, my high priest is, is a member of the party of the Sadducees. These are the people that don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. I happen to be the president of the Sanhedrin, which is not the high priest. As a Pharisee, we do believe in this 
resurrection of the dead, which causes quite a bit of conflict. And if you're not interested in those religious things, well, that's okay. But as I said, we were called into another council meeting, and these followers of Jesus, they were supposed to be brought in. I could tell because the high priest had started his indictment monologue, and I couldn't hide my smile when the high priest continued to pontificate about this atrocity that these people were causing, and the guards come in, and I could tell that they were trying to get the high priest's attention, but he was ignoring them, continuing to go on and on until all of a sudden the temple guard said, Sir, sir, um, we went to the prison, we found the doors securely locked, we found the guards in their spots alert, but when we unlocked the locked door, there was no one inside. Even being in prison can't stop these people. As the chief priests and the temple guards were standing there staring at each other, again, I was slightly humored, but someone came in from the other room, from outside the inner courts over to the outer courts and said, You'll never believe this. The disciples, these people of Jesus, they are back. And they're in the streets. They're in the temple courts. They're at Solomon's porch preaching again about Jesus. So the temple guards, they run out and run to the other side of the temple. And I could just see the anger seething and the jealousy seething in our high priest. The commotion was starting to go from rumors and murmurs to straight-out arguments about what we would do with these men when they were brought in. And the, the moment they were brought in, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. These temple guards are, are soldiers. They are men who do not fear. And yet when they brought in the apostles, it was obvious that they did not use force to bring them in. They were the ones that were filled with fear. But the apostles came in, and they could, I could just see the strength and the boldness, and the peace that was within them. The soldiers brought them in and brought them to the front. The high priest barely waited for this group of men to stand at attention before all of the council when he started his tirade. We told you, we told you that you must stop teaching in his name. You must stop healing. You must stop proclaiming. You filled the temple and you filled Jerusalem with his teaching and you are trying to make us guilty of this man's blood. And the chief spokesperson, Peter, filled with peace, filled with confidence, he says, sir, And I told you that we must obey God rather than men. For the God of our forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, who you killed by hanging on a cross. But God reversed his judgment, your judgment of him, when he raised him from the dead. And now he has made him exalted at God's right hand. He is our leader, our savior. He is our archagos, the one who comes first, the one who leads us out into repentance and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses of this, and the Holy Spirit confirms it. Now, I have been in some pretty heated council meetings between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the way that we kind of politically go at it, but never have I seen the room filled with such an anger, such a rage that, that it, was, it was almost chaos. These, especially the Sadducees, they were seething. They were convinced that they would kill these men. And as the room started to break out in shouts and shouts and call for these people to be executed, 
I said, I stood up. And I said, guards, please take these crew of men out. Let us confer. And I stood as patient as I could, reminding myself that God is the one who I love and that I, am, that I love God's law. And I stood as the circus calmed down. I looked at my fellow Pharisees and Sadducees, the men of this high council, and I said, men of Israel, consider carefully. Think about what is filling your heart and your soul right now. Consider your intentions. What do you want to do with these men? For don't you remember, there was a man named Thudius. He thought he was something. He claimed to be somebody. He had 400 men rally to him and take up his cause. And then when he was killed, the movement dispersed. It all came to nothing. Or don't you remember the time, around the time of Caesar Augustus in the first census, there was Judas, the Galilean. He rose up in power. Many men followed him. And when he died, his followers scattered. Don't you remember a false Messiah? When they die, their false movement dies too. So I ask you, consider carefully what we should do with these men. We should let God judge their case. I say, I urge us, leave them alone. For if this movement is not from God, it will die. But if it is from God, we will not be able to stop it. In fact, you will find yourselves fighting against God. The high priest looked at me long and hard for a moment. And then he looked at his fellow Sadducees around the room. He looked at his close family members. And then he conferred with the former high priest for a moment. And then he addressed us. And he said, fellow counsel, I propose that we punish these men for not obeying our ruling from before. But then we follow this guidance and we let them go. There are great crowds that are after them. We do not want to start any more riots. We do not want to have a fiasco like we had with Jesus. Let's let this false movement die. And so the high priest and the council took my advice. The rest of the people voted in favor of what the high priest said and we brought the disciples, these men of Jesus, back in and we had them flogged. Now, if you're not familiar with flogging, it is a very painful event where they take a leather whip and they spurs out the end of it between five and ten, maybe twelve strips of about one inch leather strips that even in itself is painful and certainly when you put little rocks and bone and metal glued onto the end of these things, it can leave quite a mark. In fact, our law forbids 40 lashes because that would kill anyone. But they got many more than one. And we thought our, our flogging would stop them. But instead... I hear singing outside our chambers. I hear laughter outside our chambers. 
I tell one of my students, one of my most promising students, mind you, a man who's sitting down in the back over from Tarsus, his name is Saul. I'm pretty proud of him. I had him come forward. I told him to go check out and investigate what was going on outside. He ran out from the chamber, went into the temple, and returned and told me that these men were so happy, they were filled with joy that God had counted them worthy, that he found them honorable enough to be dishonored for the name of Jesus. What? I asked my student to repeat that, and he said, Oh, yes, Rabbi, they were, they, were even quoting, they were even quoting Jesus back on the time. They said, remember on the mountain when he said, blessed are you when you are persecuted? Blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you and, 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 say, and do things to you because of me? They said that, that Jesus told them to be filled with joy because they are counted worthy of a great reward in heaven. This made no sense. And I'm a very learned man. I looked at my student again, and I asked him if he was sure, and he he said, yes, absolutely sure. I've never been dishonored for the name of my God. I've never thought about what it would mean to be so honored that I would be dishonored. I realized I've never faced dead-end situations, situations that look like they'd had no hope, like, like these men who claim to follow Jesus have faced. It made me start to question the faith I thought I had. Now, I told my student Saul to keep an eye on this group. We needed to watch out for them. They were a little tricky. And so I thought that things might settle down after Pentecost, that people would go back to their towns and their regions. But these people who claimed to follow Jesus continued to stay in Jerusalem. They continued to meet in the temple courts. They continued to meet from house to house. They continued to share things. It was, it, it was baffling, their generosity, their love, and their joy. But then Saul came and told me that there was a conflict that had arisen. Supposedly, some of the widows from outside the region of Jerusalem were were getting overlooked in the daily distribution of food for the widows that were from Jerusalem. And I thought maybe this conflict would stop them. I thought to myself, that's right. They They could just focus on meeting the needs of these new followers and and forget to do what, what God had told them to do. That maybe that would be the trick. But Saul returned and said, oh no, Rabbi, no. No, in fact, the next day I saw them. They addressed all the thousands of people that were in the temple courts. They said that they should choose from seven men among them, men to known to be full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit, that this task was very important, but not so important that the disciples should be distracted. They should lose their focus on what Jesus had told them to do, which was to pray and proclaim God's message of Jesus risen from the dead. Even conflict couldn't stop these people. He said, Saul, my student, said, that, that all the whole group was pleased with this, with this decision. Never has our group been pleased with this decision. I was a little frustrated, but I quickly turned my attention to my student because I could see 
that he was more than frustrated. I could see a bitter anger welling up in his soul. I asked him what was troubling him. And he looked at me and he said, well, don't, these men are troubling me, Rabbi. These men and these women, these, this way that this way of Jesus is distorting our teachings and distorting God's law, that's what's frustrating me. And in his anger, I just looked at him and I said, Saul, Saul, mind yourself. This situation might look impossible, but where is your focus? Is it on what you want or what you think is right? Or is it on God? Is it on being faithful to his law? Saul looked down. I said, don't let your mind be filled with this anger and this hate. Let your mind be filled with with God's love, with God's truth, and with God's spirit. For this will help you. Don't you trust that God is sovereign? If we believe that God is sovereign and we believe that this movement is not from him, which I most certainly believe it's not, then we must believe that it will be stopped, that he will stop it. Some days later, Saul reported a new situation. Seems that that there was someone from his hometown, one of these food managers, that was speaking against some of the people from Saul's home synagogue synagogue of the freedmen or something like that, that, that in fact Saul came to me in distress and said that every time Stephen talked, none of the people, even some of the priests, could stop him. He was filled with wisdom and power and grace, and, and every time he won the argument, I again could see the anger building in Saul. And again, I urged him not to let his heart be filled with anger. But the next day I was called into a meeting, another meeting of the high council, and I asked, or I didn't ask, but I sat and waited, and the high priest asked, what is this meeting being called for? Who is being charged? And a group of men, men I saw associating with Saul, brought in Stephen. They said, this man, this man Stephen, he has been speaking against God and speaking against Moses. In fact, some more witnesses came forward and they said, yes, and he's been speaking against the temple and against God's laws. And the high priest said, how do you respond to these charges? Here's the interesting thing, though. I could tell that these witnesses were lying. I could see the evil and the fear that was on their faces. And when we looked at Stephen, we saw the face of an angel. We saw a man whose, whose heart was filled with peace. I saw a man whose face was filled with light, calmness, a humility, and yet a strength. Something I saw that these men did not have who were accusing him. And when Stephen spoke, all I can say is when Saul said what a great teacher he was, I could tell. Saul spoke with wisdom of my greatest teacher. And I could tell that he would be persuasive. But it was interesting how he spoke of our common history. See, he started with Abraham and with God's sacred promise to him. He didn't start with God's law. 
Then he went to Joseph and to Moses, interesting people to choose. Yes, they are heroes of our faith, but they are also people who God chose to rescue the people and who the people, our people, rejected. And, and Stephen pointed that out. He said, God had brought these people to redeem, redeem us, and you rejected them. You even rebelled against them. And if that wasn't enough, then he starts speaking about the temple. And he talks about the sacred and holy places, and he doesn't start with Jerusalem. He again goes back to the promise of Abraham, and then he talks about Mount Sinai. Yes, holy places for us, but not the temple. And then even when he talked about the temple, he brought up Solomon's prayer about how Solomon, about how he, did, he knew that God wasn't contained in temples. And then he said, you stubborn people. You continually persecute the prophets. You continually rebel against God. And you continually resist the Holy Spirit. You even killed the chosen one. The whole council was up in arms. They were as furious as they had been, even more furious than they had been when the apostles came in, when these disciples came in. And we, in that moment of pandemonium, people grabbed Stephen and they drug him out of the temple. They drug him out of the temple. They drug him out of the city. They threw him down into a pit about 15 feet below us. They all picked up rocks. I couldn't stand this. I know that our law says that we should stone someone for, for speaking against God, but I just didn't see that this was the way. And then I looked over at my student. Saul was holding every man's coat from this synagogue that they had accused him from. He wasn't there getting blood on his hands, but he was fully approving of this man's death. It pained me to watch, but it pains me even more, even as I think about it now, today. On the one hand, I thought, maybe, in some strange way, that, that Saul's life, or that Stephen's life was, was a, just a necessary cost to keep the purity of God's law. That it was an unfortunate situation that had to happen, but, but I can't get this voice out of my head. I'd heard stories of prophets dying before. That's all over our history. But standing just 30 feet away from this pit, right before Stephen dies, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Here's a man who I think was unjustly charged and who prays and asks for forgiveness for the people that are killing him. Even this man's death is not going to stop this. In fact, even though a great persecution has broke out, even though the temple is saying that they are no more, that they will now leave, because that's what's happened. Only the apostles, only the 12 people are left. The rest have scattered all through the regions. They've left Jerusalem, but I fear that we've just thrown fuel on a fire. This can't be stopped. 
this story that we've experienced today is really the, the crisis point and also the turning point in the story of Acts and, and for the mission of God. And we're left at the end of this scene with huge unanswered questions like, wait, if Stephen was such a great guy and his life was so bright, then why was it so brief? Well, what stops you in your life? What situations are so challenging or so seemingly dead end that you're not sure where to turn? This would be a story like that. And if you're facing opposition right now in your life or you have unanswered questions like this, I would just say if we look at this story, it's not over. In fact, God is still at work. I mean, if, if Stephen had not been killed and the persecution not broken out against the church, the message and movement of Jesus would have continued to stay in the comforts of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus had promised them at the beginning of the story, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses from this place to the ends of the earth. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you, you feel this sense that God is telling you to go forward, to go out of a place, out of a mindset, out of a physical location, and you're not sure you can do it? This is a story for you that's like that. The seed I will have, I will sow, like we just sang. See, instead, what happens here is the fire of persecution is the push the church needs to get outside of Jerusalem, to get outside of its comfort zone, and to spread the message like he promised. Now, this is, um, this is a lodgepole pine. Because maybe your faith is a little bit like a seed. We use that in scripture a lot. Well, the lodgepole pine is a unique tree in that this. Um, it has two kinds of cones. One is a cone that grows on the tree, it matures and falls in, in about two years, and if the conditions are right, it grows up. But in a forest, rarely are the conditions right. There's a lot of dense tree coverage, a lot of darkness, and it's hard for those cones to grow. So if that was the case, then the old trees would continue to, to live, and then they would die, and then the other ones may or may not spring up. Well, it has a second kind of cone a cone that is covered, completely covered in this thick tar-like resin. Resin that does not come off under any circumstances except extreme heat. Like when a forest fire comes through Yellowstone National Park. All of the trees that you see there are from those second kinds of cones. Cones that don't open up, that don't burst forth until the resin has melted off from the extreme fire that comes through. Now think about it. Your faith might be like this cone. That it's just not going to come out until there's a little heat that's added to it. Until a little fire comes to you. A little pressure comes up. But when it does, that seed will burst forth. Hundreds, if not thousands, of new healthy trees will be planted. God sees you and loves you and knows that sometimes you are like that cone. I know I am. There have been times in my life where fear stopped me, where comfort has stopped me, where other people's opinions have stopped me, where I have been committed to the cause but not to Christ. These people that we read about, that we experience today in his word, are committed to a person. 
They love Jesus. They are focused on his, their faith in him and his faithfulness to them. As we come to communion, we celebrate the paradox of the story of Stephen. We celebrate the paradox where Jesus takes a cup and he says, this cup is the symbol of the new covenant sealed in my blood. I'm going to pour out my life so that you can have life. When he takes the bread, he breaks the bread and he says, this bread is like my body. It will be broken for you. But when you eat and partake of it, you will receive life. As our communion assistants come forward, I would just like you to consider that what seemed like disarray and dead end in the church was actually the beginning of new life and restoration for many. God used the death of Stephen to bring his promises. I can't tell you exactly why you're going through an impossible situation that might seem like a dead end, but I can tell you that God isn't finished with the story. When you trust him, he will work. He promises to have the final say and that Jesus will get the glory. Our communion servers are going to be up front, our gluten-free options in the back. As you take the bread, would you just remember that this is the body of Christ. It's broken for you individually. Jesus would look you in the eye and say that his body is broken for you. When you dip it in the cup, would you remember that his blood was shed for you? Yes, us, but for you. That God will go to every length to see you in relationship with him. So come when you're ready.